0: Please turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 18. Lord willing, we'll finish up this chapter today. Uh, Last week, we read and expounded verses 1 through 17 as Paul was preaching in the city of Corinth, that great commercial center um, that connected um, northern and southern Greece. And uh, today, we're going to pick up the story in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. Says after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea <coughs> pardon me <coughs> set sail from Ephesus i think i said to Ephesus when he had landed at Caesarea he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch after spending some time there he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of galatia and phrygia strengthening all the disciples now a jew named apollos a native of alexandria came to ephesus he was an eloquent man Competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Amen. Well, at the beginning of our text today, we find Paul wrapping up his ministry in the city of Corinth, um, at least wrapping it up for the time being. And I say that because uh, Paul will make another trip to Corinth uh, that we'll read about later in the book of Acts, and we encounter a couple of visits as uh, in First and Second Corinthians that Paul refers to that he had made to that city. Now, Corinth, you'll remember, was situated on a narrow isthmus that connected uh, the Greek mainland to the north to what's called the Peloponnesus in the south. Um, and in verse 18, it says, after this, after the events that we just we read about last week in chapters 1 through 17, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, meaning longer than... Uh, verse 11, when it says that he stayed there a year and a half. And if we put all of this together, we can kind of surmise that Paul spent perhaps about uh, two years in the city of Corinth. And then it says that he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila, whom we first met in verses 1 through 4 of the chapter. And Priscilla and Aquila, as we mentioned last week, became lifelong friends of Paul. We find that three of them interacting together throughout the rest of Paul's life. And in fact, I mentioned last week that in Paul's very last letter, almost the last verses of 2 Timothy, Paul sends his greetings uh, to Priscilla and Aquila. And we find that he refers to them a number of times in very fond terms. It says in verse 2 that at Centria, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Centria was a city on the other side of the Isthmus from Corinth, Um, As you can see there on the map, Corinth to the west, Centuria to the east. And you might remember that we said last week that the Mediterranean just south of the Peloponnesus was very dangerous to sail. And so traders found it to their advantage, um, if they're going from east to west or west to east, to unload at one of the ports all of their goods that they're transporting, transport them across land, and then put them on another ship and continue continue their journey. And so this was a reason why Corinth became such a, a wealthy a commercial center in this part of Greece uh, because it, it uh, catered to those who were trading back and forth from east to west, primarily from Rome to Asia Minor and sometimes even further east into the, into the land of Syria or Judea. And so <clears throat> it was from Centria that Paul would set sail to head back to Judea. Now, while he was in Centria, Paul had his hair cut and this was because there was a very famous barber in Centuria (laughs) and he wanted to look very stylish when he got back home. No, just kidding. Uh, The reference to having his hair cut, it tells us, is with reference to a vow. He had his hair cut, it says, because he was under a vow. Now, this particular vow that is in mind is what's called a Nazarite vow, which we'll take a look at in just a moment, very briefly. But to make a vow is to promise to render a service give a gift or devote something of value to God. And typically a person would make a vow to God as a form of supplicating him for some kind of mercy or for some kind of help or benefit. And we find people throughout the scriptures making vows on various occasions or after an unexpected blessing or favor from God. A person would devote himself to live for a time under a vow as a a form of giving thanks to God. And this is what we're finding with the Apostle Paul. And the specific vow that is being referenced here is what's called the vow of a Nazarite. And you may have uh, remembered this from Numbers chapter 6. If you would turn there with me, we'll just very briefly explain what this is and show how it's relevant to what we're reading here about the Apostle Paul. In Numbers chapter 6, the Lord gives instructions concerning what's called a Nazarite vow. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, he shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and he shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. Okay, all the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All right, now, why is this? Is it because there's something inherently evil about uh, grapes and, and the products of the grapevine? Not at all. But it's a form of um, asceticism. It's a form of denial of the pleasures of life as a way of expressing some kind of supplication or rendering of thanksgiving to God. He's separated himself unto God by separating himself from some of the simple pleasures of life with regard um, to, the, to the grapevine. And he goes on to say, there's more to it, um, all that, verse, verse 5, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his, the hair of his head grow long. So this vow was a vow that was taken for a set period of time. Um, normally it was about a period of a month, but sometimes it could be much, much longer. Um, in fact, some people were designated as Nazarites even from birth, like the prophet Samuel. Um, and so uh, a person would dedicate himself to the Lord under this vow, make a vow, rendering himself as separated unto the Lord during this time and during that time his hair would not be cut then at the end of that period of time he is to cut his hair at the conclusion of that special vow and there were other things that were to be done as well well this is what's going on in Acts chapter 18 as Paul has his hair cut because he's under a vow now what vow did he take or why or what was the occasion for him taking a vow well i would suggest to you that he is he, he made a vow in response to the promise of protection that the Lord Jesus Christ gave him earlier in the chapter. Uh, back, in chapter uh, back earlier in the chapter, verses 9 and 10, recall it says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So, God makes a promise of protection to Paul. And I would submit to you that it's in response to this promise of protection that Paul makes this vow to the Lord. In fact, I would suggest that what Paul does here exactly parallels an incident in the life of Jacob. Jacob, you might remember, had uh, been sent away from home in the land of Canaan to go seek a wife in the land of his fathers, Padan Aram. And as he's going and Travel in the ancient world was very dangerous, but the Lord appeared to Jacob in a dream, and he said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. All right, so he makes a promise to Jacob. And what is that promise? Essentially, it is a promise of protection. I will be with you, and the effect of my being with you is that I will keep you, I will guard you, I will protect you, and I'll bring you safely back to this land. And so we put the promise to Paul right up next to it, and it's very similar. Again, do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And what's the effect of this? No one will attack you to harm you. Jesus is making a promise to Paul that he will be kept safe He'll be divinely protected. And you remember, we mentioned last week when Paul writes to the Corinthians in his first letter that he expresses that he was in great fear when he was with them. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so the Lord graciously appears to him in a vision and gives him a promise of protection. Well, what was Jacob's response to this promise of protection? Well, he makes a vow. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So we have promise of protection, and in response to it, Jacob makes a vow. And I would submit to you that this is exactly what's taking place in Acts chapter 18. The Lord makes a promise to Paul, and Paul responds by making a vow. Even though the the vow is not specifically mentioned, I would suggest that Paul said something like this: Lord, if you will indeed keep me safe from all my enemies at Corinth, who threaten me on every side, then I will live as a Nazarite until I leave here. And then about two years later, when he's getting ready to leave, he makes it safely outside of the city to Centria. He's getting ready to depart to go home, and his vow is complete. He has his hair cut and probably fulfills the rest of his responsibilities in completing the vow when he reaches Jerusalem. So I think that this is what's going on here. So Paul set sail from Centria along with Aquila and Priscilla and possibly Silas and Timothy, and they came to Ephesus, it says in verse 19, which lay on the eastern shore of the Aegean Sea in what is today the modern country of Turkey. Now, Ephesus was the dominant city in that part of the world. In fact, the most dominant city in the eastern half of the Mediterranean, only behind Antioch, uh, where Paul started from, and Alexandria in Egypt. It also was a commercial center, but in Asia Minor. Um, And it prided itself on being the keeper, the guardian of the great goddess Artemis, or Diana. And uh, we'll talk more about this at another time. The city was wholly addicted to the worship of this goddess. Um, So in chapter 19, we'll talk more about it, as I said, because Paul will spend a good deal more time there. On this particular visit here in chapter 18, it's just a brief visit that he makes to the synagogue. And notice that it says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. Now, here we note something uh, that was characteristic of Paul, and that is they had a very strong sense of God's providence. He says, and he makes a commitment, I will come to you again. I can only spend a short time here, but I will come to you again if God wills. Um, He understood that people can make their plans, they can choose their way, but it's God's providence that overrules all things. In fact, I believe he would agree. I know he would agree with what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 16 when he says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, some people take the idea of God's sovereignty or of God's providence and it leads them into a posture of passivity. Well, I just, you know, who are we to act if God is all sovereign and God is all provident? But we notice. Paul is an active man. There's nothing passive about him. He's going here, he's going there, he's strenuously serving the Lord in prayer and in preaching and in teaching and trying to persuade people. His confidence of success derives from the fact that he believes in the great providence of God and God's power to do things in answer to prayer and God's promise especially to do things as his word is being faithfully preached. Pass- passivity did not come as a result In Paul's mind, of of providence or God's sovereignty, just the opposite is the case. So let us, as we seek to live in our short stay here in this world, to make plans, to be active, to do great things for for God and for ourselves and for our families, but let's do as Paul did, always attached to the end of it, if it be God's will. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, this isn't the only time we find Paul saying such things. In Romans chapter 15, he says, Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that by God's will I may come to you. Notice, strive with me. Paul was striving. He was working hard in prayer to the effect that he might make it safely to Rome to preach the gospel there. And he's telling the Romans themselves, strive with me in prayer, that I may come to you by God's will. In other words, if it meets with God's will, um, I, I want to be there. He writes to the Corinthians in chapter 4, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Chapter 16 of First Corinthians, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And if you believe, Paul wrote Hebrews, as I do, Hebrews 6.3, and this we will do. He proposes a certain course of action, and he says, this we will do if God permits. And Paul's not alone in speaking this way. Our Lord's brother, James, in James chapter 4, says, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that.'" And so this idea is very prominent in Scripture, um, that we should always um, submit our plans to the will of the Lord and and hold on to them, pursue them vigorously, but always remember that God reserves the right to overrule things and do things as he sees fit. And then we acquiesce and say, yes, Lord, you were right. All right, so Paul sets sail from Ephesus, and it says, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, meaning the church in Jerusalem, going up. It's, it's always going up to Jerusalem. Um, and, and then he went down, it says, to Antioch. Doesn't matter which direction you go, north, south, east, or west, if you're leaving Jerusalem, you're going down. If you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. And so from Ephesus, the land, he landed in uh, Caesarea, and from Caesarea went to Jerusalem and down to Antioch. And we can trace all this out on a map. So sailing from Ephesus across the eastern portion of the Mediterranean to Caesarea, uh, Melinda and I spent a little bit of time there in our trip uh, earlier this spring, uh, from Caesarea down to Jerusalem, or as the text says, up to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem down to Antioch. Moving away from Jerusalem is going down, even though he might be going north. So this is where Paul ends up, but remember, this is exactly where he began. He began his missionary journey in Antioch. So... Uh, this is where Paul is, and what do we find him doing there? It says, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. So while he's there, he's no doubt recounting to the brothers and sisters there all that God was pleased to do through him and preaching the gospel in these different places, even as it, when he was in Jerusalem, probably fulfilled the other portions of the vow that could only take place in Jerusalem. Um, but then also probably visited with the apostles who might still have been there and declared to them the things that God was pleased to do through his ministry um, in Corinth and Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, the other places that we have read about. Um, And now he comes back to the sending church, uh, the church at Antioch, and again does the same thing and receives refreshment there in the fellowship of the saints and encourages them as well. But then again, it says that he left there and he went through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. Now, those two regions should sound very familiar to you because we have uh, read about these before in earlier uh, missionary labors of Paul. He went through these areas. Um, And what he did now is to retrace the overland route that he took as he began his second missionary journey. And he went through his home city of Tarsus, went through Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and back to another Antioch, Antioch in Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch. And what was he doing here? He was strengthening the disciples, it says. He was strengthening them. How does, how does he strengthen them? He brought his weight set along and his uh, exercise bicycle. Now he's, he's teaching them, he's grounding them in the faith. He's making sure that they get a settled and established understanding of what the gospel is all about. He's giving them moral exhortation, moral instruction. This is what it means to live like a believer in Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for you. He's making sure that they understand the gospel. Now, this is the third time that he has been through these cities. The first time was on his first missionary journey that we read about in chapters 13 and 14. The second time was in Acts chapter uh, 16. And now he's going through these cities again for the third time, strengthening Um, the disciples. So teaching them and grounding them in the faith. Now Luke doesn't go into any detail here about what he said or what events transpired this third time through because Luke's purpose in writing his gospel is to show the advance, the progress of the gospel. This is ground that Paul has already covered, so he just passes over it pretty quickly and summarizes his ministry there by saying he was strengthening the disciples. And then he moves on to Get introduced to us, Luke does, a new figure in verses 24 through 28. While Paul is making these travels, um, it says in verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria in Egypt, came to Ephesus. So Paul leaves, and another man who proved to be very prominent in the early church, a man by the name of Apollos, arrives in Ephesus. Luke says he was an eloquent man. The Greek word means more precisely that he was learned, erudite, very well read, had a mind who could comprehend things rather well. And then by implication, it means that he was eloquent. He was able to communicate the knowledge that he had to others. Luke says that he was competent in the scriptures. The old King James Version, I believe, says that he was powerful in the scriptures. And that may well be the the best meaning of the word as it's used in this context. The idea is that he was thoroughly knowledgeable of the scriptures, and he was able to teach them very effectively. And it says in verse 25 that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. John. In other words, although he knew Jesus and believed in Jesus and was teaching the way of the Lord accurately, um, he had not yet received Christian baptism. He had only been baptized by John the Baptist. Um, Things were at this stage of the growth of the church um, done in a less than orderly way at times. Um, one wonders how different people came to know the Lord. How did Apollos get to know the Lord? He comes to Ephesus and he already knows the Lord. He's ter- teaching the way of the Lord accurately, but he only has the barest minimum understanding and knowledge of Jesus. But how did he come to know? How did Aquila and Priscilla come to know? They had been in Rome, and they get kicked out of Rome because they're Jews. They find their way to Corinth, but they're already believers. You know, how did the people in Rome? Know? Were they? Aquila and Priscilla, were they possibly in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was first poured out and they come to believe after hearing Peter preach the gospel and then maybe were grounded in the gospel as they spent some time there before going back to Rome? Or were they in Rome the whole time and others from Rome who had been in Jerusalem brought the gospel back with them? We don't know. It'd be very interesting to trace all of these different things out. But here's a man who is a believer. He was very well-read, very knowledgeable. He comes to believe. He finds himself in Ephesus. He's eloquent. He's competent in the scriptures. But all he knows up to now is the baptism of John. He hasn't received Christian baptism yet. So things were somewhat chaotic in this period of time. Uh, the written gospels, um, at least the ones that existed by this time, had not been widely distributed, And Paul was just beginning to write his epistles. Probably Galatians was written by this time and 1 Thessalonians also. And so some of the things that we would take as basic information about the life of Jesus and about the way of the Christian faith were not as well known as we might otherwise expect. So here's Apollos doing a great work in teaching the scriptures about Christ, but not having been baptized and formally instructed in some of what we would call the basics of the faith. And it says in verse 26 that he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Now, Achaia was a province basically coextensive with what we think of as Greece, where Paul had just been. Corinth, Athens, uh, further to the south would have been Sparta. Um, basically, what we think of as all of southern Greece, basically what you see on the map up in the upper left-hand corner, that would be the region of Achaia. So, Apollos wishes to go from Ephesus um, over to Achaia. And it says that the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Now, <clears throat> Luke describes the ministry of Apollos by saying, when he arrived um, in Achaia, he, he greatly helped those who through grace believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus now a couple of things to note here first those who believe and note this well believe through grace notice what it says again that he he when he arrived he greatly helped those who through grace had believed Now, this means that faith itself is a gift of God's grace. We we believe because God has been gracious to us. It's not because we are so righteous or so wise that we have come to believe, but rather because like Lydia, the Lord opened up our hearts to believe. Remember that was said of her in chapter 16, that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the things that were said by Paul, which led to her conversion. And likewise, it is with us. We believe not because we're such good people. We believe because God has been gracious to us. We believe through grace. And then secondly, we see once again the great issue of the day. Apollo spent his time showing by the scriptures that Christ or the Christ was Jesus. How many times have we seen this phrase already? And we've pointed out many times that this was the issue of the day. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? This was the great dividing line uh, among the Jews um, at this period of history Um, because there were those who said Jesus is the Christ and others who adamantly denied that he was the Christ. Pharisees and Sadducees had much um, in disagreement that they held with each in in terms of each other, relationship to each other, Um, But many of them agreed with each other that these Christians are heretics. These Jews who believe that Jesus is the Christ, they are heretics. They should be cast out of the synagogues. They should be disowned as Jews. And so notwithstanding all the disagreements, and there were some very fundamental disagreements with each other, they were at least agreed in this, that those who confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, um, should no longer be considered faithful Jews. And, in fact, this is still the position of many uh, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews today, where if somebody in an Orthodox family would come to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, the family will literally mourn for them and hold a funeral for them um, as if they had died. They would say, you are dead to us. And so uh, this is, this was the issue then and for really everyone today. It's an issue for us. Who do you say that Jesus is? is he Is he to you who he claims to be, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, through whom and only through whom there is salvation? Or is he just some figure in history, some prophet, some moral teacher, some religious leader like Buddha or Muhammad or somebody else? Is he an ordinary man or is he the Christ, the Son of the living God? That is the issue that everyone has to grapple with and certainly was the issue... Um, among the Jews at that day in particular. So he spends his time, Apollos does, preaching and teaching in the synagogues and to all who would hear him among the Jewish community that Jesus is the Christ. Now, um, he did this with great effect, apparently. Um, It says that he powerfully refuted them from the Scriptures. Uh, The Lord used his competency in the Scriptures and his rhetorical gifts. Uh, used his ability to speak well, to be very persuasive in bringing people to to an understanding of the truth and to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And the evidence suggests that he was greatly loved in the church at Corinth, so much so that there were many believers there who claimed a special connection uh, to Apollos. In fact, when we read in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, we actually see that there were divisions in the church based on various personalities that the members found to be um, particularly appealing. By the way, some people find Paul appealing and Peter appalling, but <laughs> but what about Apollos? Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice what it says here. Beginning in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you But you you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by close people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Uh, Or I follow Christ. And some have said that maybe it's that last group that was the worst of all. (laughs) like they thought of themselves as so much superior to everybody else in the church. Oh, you followers of men, I'm a follower of Christ. It could be read maybe that way as kind of a, an arrogant claim, or it could be read more humbly. But the way Paul, since he juxtaposes this or includes this in with others claiming to be follower of this or that man, it maybe is ind- indicative of... Um, Uh, a kind of uh, arrogance that we and we alone are followers of Christ. But notice here how there is division among them. And they probably each had their claims uh, of why their particular favorite minister ought to be uh, held up on a high pedestal. Uh, Those perhaps who claim to be followers of Paul would say, look, Paul was the one who brought us the gospel. It was through Paul that we have come to believe. Obviously, I'm a follower of Paul. Others might have said, well, but Peter, I mean, he was like at the head of the 12 that followed Jesus in the days of his flesh. He was the one to whom Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom. He was the one who did this or that, and they had their reasons for following Peter. Others followed Apollos, and maybe it was because of his great rhetorical gifts. I'm a follower, follower of Apollos. Man, when he gets behind the pulpit, I am spellbound. Unlike that fellow in Pratt, I mean, he's, you know, I mean, when Apollos speaks, time passes real quickly. You know, so they each had their own reasons, um, but Apollos evidently was very much loved there um, and for and for good reason, but by some uh, loved a bit too much, perhaps. So Apollos becomes a, a figure that is brought to the forefront in Luke's narrative here and he'll um, appear from time to time. Uh, but not, not as a prominent figure. There are some people, by the way, that I mentioned earlier that the book of Hebrews, um, I believe that Paul is probably the most likely author of Hebrews, but the reason why there's a question about it is because the author doesn't include his own name, as Paul normally does with his letters, or as Peter does, or um, some of the other writers of the Scriptures. And so there is dispute. There are some things in the style and character of Hebrews that's a bit different from the known letters of Paul. And so some say, well, Paul, even though it's a traditional ascription to uh, say that Paul wrote Hebrews, others, some scholars deny it. Some have suggested that it was Apollos because there's an elevated literary style in Hebrews that is a bit different from Paul's letters. I think it's because it's written as a sermon rather than as a letter. But at any rate, there's definitely an elevated style. And some people say, well, it matches the, what's said about Apollos, his rhetoric, his, his eloquence, his competency um, in the scriptures and so forth. Be that as it may, we don't know for sure. Uh, but at any rate, uh, there was uh, great work that God was doing through all of these men, whether it be Peter or Paul or Apollos or the other disciples who are very rarely named after Acts chapter 1. Yet tradition says that they went into other regions of the world. In God's providence, he had Luke record for us the work of uh, the Apostle Paul. But we know God has many ways of reaching out, and he used the apostles in a variety of ways. Well, let us transition now to the observance of the Lord's Supper, um, in which we commemorate our Lord's suffering. Uh, We know, as a matter of fact, from many of the places in the Book of Acts, though it's not evident in the passage that we read today, that this was the burden of Paul's preaching to speak of the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, um, in the passage that we uh, referenced earlier, just before that, Paul says, When I was with you, I determined to know nothing except Christ crucified. Christ crucified, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ is central to the message of the gospel. Um, In fact, the record of our Lord's suffering looms very large in all four of the written gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, nearly a third of the material in each gospel is devoted uh, to the suffering, to the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the gospels, you understand, are not mere biographies, if they can be called biographies in any sense of the word, Uh, There is much in the life of Jesus that is passed over in silence that would be covered by a typical biography. The purpose of the four gospels is rather theological to convey to us what God has done in Christ for the salvation of sinners. They proclaim the good news, and as I said, the cross is central to the saving message of the gospel, the cross in, in all of its horror. This is why the Prophet Isaiah refers to our Lord as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because of his passion, his suffering. You know, it's a funny thing that we do with the cross, perfectly understandable, but it's a funny thing that we do with the cross in that we use it to decorate our homes, to decorate our jewelry. Um, We we cherish the cross. uh, We beautify the cross. But when you remember that the cross is an instrument of torture and death, You know that it was a a thing that was filled with that caused people to be filled with horror at the contemplation of crucifixion, and the Romans used crucifixion a lot, and so people were familiar with the process and the horrors of the cross. And yet, it is something that for us as believers is something beautiful, not because of what it is in and of itself, but because of what transpired on one cross two thousand years ago when our Lord was was uh, crucified. Matthew, in his account of the suffering of our Lord, uh, brings into sharp focus this idea of Jesus being the man of sorrows. In Matthew chapter 26, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, we know that at other points in Jesus' life, he experienced sorrow. He's at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and it says that Jesus wept. And we can be sure that there were other occasions that Jesus felt the pang of sorrow. But here it says Jesus began to feel, to be sorrowful and troubled because here it was in a unique way that he experienced sorrow. It was in Gethsemane that our Lord began to enter the deep darkness of suffering. In Gethsemane, that as the psalmist in his figurative wording says, all of God's breakers and waves swept over him. He was sorrowful and troubled. And what a contrast we find here in this statement to what we see and read of Jesus elsewhere in the scriptures. What a contrast to the sweet sense of calm that seems to characterize him at all other times. He could, after all, remain asleep comfortably in the back of a boat in the midst of a squall on the Sea of Galilee when all of his disciples are thinking they're going to drown. They're going to be overwhelmed with the waves and be plunged down to the depths and drown, and Jesus is fast asleep in the back of the boat. And they wake him all in a dither, and they're all afraid, and Jesus just calmly rebukes the wind and the waves, and they become still. Jesus faces this with calm equanimity. He's not upset. He's not afraid. He's, he's not in terror. He could face a legion of demons and even the devil himself in the wilderness with perfect composure. But here in Gethsemane, we find him sorrowful and troubled. Mark puts it this way. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And when you think about it, we have to understand that his was a unique sorrow. No one had ever experienced the distress that he felt at this time, either before or since, and no one ever could. His was, by the very nature of the case, an unparalleled sorrow, because he would bear the full weight of the wrath of God for human sin upon himself. It wasn't just an ordinary crucifixion. Some people who are familiar with uh, ancient writings will compare or contrast um, Socrates' uh, demeanor as he faced death with Jesus, and Socrates was very calm. He was also very ignorant and didn't know all that was entailed by death. But he also didn't experience what Jesus did, and that was having the weight of the wrath of God against human sin placed upon him and the prospect of what all that entailed beyond simply the physical suffering that he would endure. Socrates' death was a painless death by Hemlock. Our Lord's death was a very excruciating form of death. In fact, that word excruciating comes from the Latin crux, which... Um, means cross. Excruciating pain is the pain one experiences in crucifixion. But it was far beyond just the physical pain that our Lord endured that formed his suffering. There was much more to it than this. He would be separated from the intimate communion that he had with the Father from all eternity. The command given to the angels to guard him in all his ways, to bear him up lest he strike his foot against a stone, this command was revoked. The devil was given dominion over him. He was turned over into the hands of sinful men, and they horribly abused him and mistreated him. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And it was in view of this that our Lord, before his passion began, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. He wishes us always to remember how his body was broken on the cross for us, how he suffered for us, and likewise how his blood was poured out for us. And this is why he took the cup of the Passover table, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for the man of sorrows, this man who was acquainted with grief in a way that no other man has been before or since. We give you thanks and praise for our suffering servant and for all that he has accomplished for our redemption. Would you bless and sanctify the bread and the cup upon this table, emblems of the body and blood of your holy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And would you enable us by your grace to humbly receive what is promised in this holy sacrament. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.